brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello and welcome to the Life After God podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this is November the 18th, episode 13. And I have a very important uh, interview for you today. A friend of mine named Ani Zanaveld will come to that in just a moment. Before we do that, a few housekeeping items, a few notes from my my life. Um, it's been a busy month so far. I've been uh, traveling quite a bit. Last week, I was in New York and uh, Hartford and Spokane doing a couple of speaking appointments. And I had a meeting with my um, my book agent. So I'm excited to tell you that I'm, I'm making progress on uh, the book I'm working on about um, my year without God and my um, growing up experiences in the church and my religious upbringing and how my um, my journey unfolded over uh, a great many years. And so I'm excited about that. And um, but I then I traveled down to San Diego uh, last weekend for a friend's wedding and home for a few days. And now I'm almost literally headed out the door for Atlanta. This weekend is very exciting uh, time. We're having our launch party for Life After God, which basically means, you know, whoever's in Atlanta, uh, we're getting together at 3 p.m. on Saturday, November the 21st, which is this weekend, um, at a really cool uh, venue called Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. And uh, I've never been there, but with a title like that, a name like that, I can't wait to uh, to see what it is. Uh, you can find out about um, the launch party at our website, lifeaftergod.org. It's the top story on the blog, and you can uh, register there. It's uh, $25 to, to join us. If you're a student uh, or if you're bringing a partner or a spouse, hit me up for a discount code at Ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Just email me and I will send you the discount code if you have a partner or if you're a student. And But it's only $25 to begin with. If you can uh, join us, we would love to have you. We've got about 40, 45 people so far registered. We have about 15 or 20 spots left for, uh, for guests and we'll be also taking registrations at the door. So if you just happen to show up. Um, the reason we're doing it in Atlanta is a couple of reasons. Um, one of the key members of our leadership team, Jeff Straka, lives in Atlanta, and he's been an incredible supporter, uh, both of me personally and of Life After God and a number of other local meetups in Atlanta. So he's been sort of home base for us there. He'll be playing host to me. So thanks in advance, Jeff, for um, showing me around and uh, drinking beer with me all weekend. And uh, also... Um, the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Biblical Literature that meets every year is meeting in Atlanta this year. 
So that means a lot of religion scholars will already be in town. And I know Greta Vosper, who's an important part of Life After God, part of the leadership team, uh, was planning to be in Atlanta anyway. The Westar Institute, which has been for decades the sort of curator of the Jesus Seminar, uh, a lot of incredible and important research has come out of the Westar Institute over the years, including the work of Lloyd Gearing, who I've mentioned before and who I hope to have on the podcast in the future. So Westar is having some seminars there, which I'll be participating in, and I believe Greta will be as well. And Laron Schultz, who you heard on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, will be making the trek back across the Atlantic to give a paper uh, about um, modeling religion in the um, in the work that he's doing. We'll be talking more about his modeling religion project in upcoming episodes, but he'll be in Atlanta as well and joining us at the launch party. Also, uh, Mandisa Latifa Thomas, who is the founder and president of Black Nonbelievers uh, based in Atlanta, will be joining us and speaking at our launch party. And it's just going to be a great time. Uh, Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room is a fantastic, funny, uh, exciting place. We're just going to have a, a fun time, but it's also a serious time because we are uh, launching this important endeavor. Um, a few of us on the leadership team and those that want to to join us for some brainstorming, uh, we'll be talking about the future of Life After God, what we can be doing to to grow this work, and what the important aspects of it are and how to better deliver uh, the things that we want to share. So uh, so join us in Atlanta. It's not too late. Jump in your car. I think you can make it if you leave now. Uh, so join us there if you can. If not, I know that you'll you'll join us in spirit. Go to lifeaftergod.org. Look for the, the article about the launch party. All the links to registering and all of the details about the location and everything are there. In addition to the launch party on Saturday, Greta and I are doing a sort of a mini uh, Atlanta area tour. Uh, on the 19th of November, which is tomorrow night, uh, we will be at, at Barry College speaking uh, for their interfaith council uh, to the students at Barry College about post-theism, and Greta will be sharing a bit about her work at West Hill and the future of post-theism in the church. Um, the next day, we'll be at Kennesaw State University uh, on Friday the 20th and doing something similar. And then on Saturday, the launch party, as I mentioned. And then on Sunday the 22nd, the Atlanta Free Thought Society will be hosting Greta and I uh, for a talk there. So four talks in four days. Uh, join us at any of those uh, as you see fit. All of the information is on the website on the right column under events. And most of those uh, are donation-based or free, um, the launch party, because we're trying to raise some funds to actually launch Life After God, uh, does come with a, a small registration fee. So thanks in advance, uh, those of you that have uh, already signed up. We look forward to seeing you there. Um, today, uh, I, I'm excited. Uh, maybe excited is the wrong word. I'm I'm honored to bring you a conversation with my friend Ani Zonneveld, who is the founder and executive director, or maybe she calls it president or something. She's the leader, let's put it that way, of this very important organization called Muslims for Progressive Values. You may hear her in the interview refer to MPV, which is Muslims for Progressive Values. Ani uh, is a singer and a songwriter and a music producer based here in Los Angeles, not too far from where I live. We've known each other for years through the progressive interfaith community in the Los Angeles area, and she has been a pioneering voice uh, in progressive Islam and the effort to move Islam toward a more inclusive um, and progressive future. And uh, she's going to talk to us a little bit about that. We're going to reflect for a moment about um, the recent events in Paris and Beirut and in Iraq. Um, and it's a it's a somber and sobering time. I, I was saying to Rebecca yesterday that it it reminds me, if not in magnitude, at least in in sort of the feeling associated with these events, very much of of September the 11th. Um, they the events of September 11th, of course, happened much closer in proximity to where uh, I live in the United States. Um, but the the feeling of of solidarity, 
concern, also some of the very extreme backlash and responses from some quarters reminds me very much of the post 9-11 days. And, and so these are, these are important times to be thoughtful and to reflect carefully on what our res- best response should be, how we can support those in need, and how we can move a conversation about the future forward in a, in a way that is um, inclusive and benefits uh, the most people without causing an even greater problem. So um, without any further delay, let me um, share with you uh, this conversation with Ani Zonneveld. I hope you enjoy it. My guest today on the Life After God podcast is my friend Ani Zonneveld, who is ordinarily living here in Los Angeles near where I live, but is today uh, speaking to me from Malaysia. Uh, hi, Ani. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah. It's a pleasure. Um, and uh, I would love to uh, introduce, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to um, the listeners of my program. And uh, you're somebody that I've really enjoyed speaking to through the years. And I know that uh, people are going to really appreciate your perspective. Um, so I just wanted to, um, I, I know you're, you're in Malaysia, which makes me, I guess, want to begin by asking uh, what's going on there? What, what's happening in Malaysia? Um, I'm here in Kuala Lumpur to, um, for the Muslims for Progressive Values Conference in, in Malaysia. And it's convening our organization here as well as uh, MPV Australia. Um, it's a strategy meeting. It's um, uh, figuring out what our next steps are. It's grassroots meeting. So it's gathering all our community members together and sort of brainstorming. Wow. And how's that? How did it go? How's it been? Um, it went really well, considering um, we went without a hitch and with no um, disruption by the religious authorities or by the police. And I say that because um, in advance of that, I, there was a social media campaign against me. Um, and there was a video with 90,000 views and hits and 2,500 shares. Oh, wow. And it was promoted by a radical group, um, an intolerant right-wing Muslim group here in Malaysia and what they did was they tagged um, the religious authorities all of them Hmm. and called for the religious authorities to investigate me and um, what's interesting was just me doing the call for prayer in in a a code congregation and basically to them it was a deviant teaching because it was men and women praying together yeah that's right that's right oh wow and you know, and that's sort of we we call that style of prayer Mecca style because in Mecca we pray um, men and women mixed, right? You can pray with your family, um, and yet in physical spaces outside of Mecca we are segregated, and we find that an unnatural arrangement, and right. so we are bucking that tradition. You've been doing that for a number of years now, uh, co-ed prayers yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Since two thousand six. So. And that is that when Muslims for Progressive Values began. Well, for me, it started. Um, it it came about by default. I was uh, after nine eleven. I put I put out an Islamic pop CD because I'm I'm a songwriter producer based out of Los Angeles, and um, un, unbeknownst to me. Um, there has never been such an Islamic pop CD in English by a female artist. And um, and so none of the Muslim retail stores would sell it because they said I used all the musical instrumentation. And, um, I, you know, what is permissible is just a percussion. And given that I'm a female singer, that's a double whammy mm. uh, because the female voices should be silenced and sexual because it's sexual, right? So just be automatically it, it's sexual. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <sighs> um, and it's really absurd because this I know goes contrary to our traditions because we've always had female teachers, and poets, um, saints. Um, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first converts to Islam were women because it uplifted women, it liberated women um, from the tribal ways of the day. So, um, so this, this, you know, this sort of 
Saudi interpretation of Islam is what rules much of the Muslim organizations in the U.S. And um, knowing better, you know, studying the Quran for myself, I, I, uh, you know, it's it's just unacceptable. You know, once your heart and mind is open to the reality and to the truth, right? It's like going back to the status quo is not an option. Really not, yeah. Now, so in Malaysia, where they were investigating you, are you, uh, are, you said the conference went off without a hitch. Are you in the clear? Or are they still trying to uh, give you trouble there? I don't know yet. Um, uh, it went, went without a hitch because we had to move. Um, we, you know, we took down the website, um, the local MPV chapter website, wow. and um, you know, we we basically announced it was canceled. But those who were were invited attended in solidarity, and so did the dinner events. Um, the diplomats we invited attended in solidarity. Um, so we moved the location, and the police were not able to sniff us out. They tried. They, they called the organizer and pretended that they were university students. You wow. Know? <laughs> You're very covert. Like you, you, uh, You've done a nice job of uh, evading them. Yeah, we'll see how far that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> now, now yeah. are you gonna? Are you expecting any trouble traveling out of the country or to your next appointment? Um, I am staying at a friend's house who's taken very good care of me, um, and nice. yeah, yeah, and um, but you know the activists in Malaysia are accustomed to this. For them, it's like they say, it's we're like ducks with water sliding off our backs, you know. <laughs> Yeah. They're so used and, to it. Yeah, they're so used to this sort of form of threats and oppression. And what can they um, really do to you? I mean, are they the civil authorities as well? They have. The religious authorities have a lot of power. Um, there are, have been several cases where um, they they charge um, anyone they want to with deviant teachings. So there's a case of an 80-year-old man called um, Kasim Ahmad who was charged with um, apostasy because he challenged the authenticity of the Hadith, which is a collection of writings that were written and compiled 200 years after Prophet Muhammad died, hmm. claiming Prophet Muhammad said this and he did that. And so he was saying, you know, first of all, why is the Hadith... Um, of equal status to the Quran, number one, and number two, place, yeah, yeah, and number two is the authenticity authenticity of some of the hadith. It needs to be questioned because why should we uphold them or follow them when they contradict the Quran, right? Right. So it's a very rational challenge, and there are many Muslims who feel the same way. But in the Muslim world, if you voice that, you are, you know, like this old man, he's charged with apostasy, which is so. That's the reality. But in Malaysia, if you're Muslim, you fall under Sharia and you fall Sharia law, and you are basically at the mercy of these religious authorities. But if you are non-Muslim, you fall under civil law, which has which is a lot more liberating. So the mm. non-Muslims in Malaysia have more rights. Um, yeah, because we frequently more, hear that Malaysia yeah. is a dem you know democratic country. It's a fairly moderate uh, Muslim majority country. But it, there's a parallel track here, it sounds like, where if you're Muslim, you have a much higher sort of threshold that you have to meet. Yeah. No, there's, there's, um, uh, uh, there's, a, very, uh, there's a disconnect, there's a hypocrisy going on because Malaysia, a Malaysian pres prime minister goes on promoting itself as the, uh, the moderate Muslim country. And at the same time, their religious arm authority is persecuting and um, you know very harsh on anyone that thinks um, you know outside of the status quo, right. and um, and but not only that, you have radical groups that like Hezbollah Tahrir, which is um, which according to the U.S. government is a terrorist group right. operating openly in Malaysia as a registered NGO. Wow. Okay? Yeah. It's crazy, and the Salafis have you know they have they are registered. They they have their own. They have their madrasas. The Muslim Brotherhood they have the madrasas, and and yet progressives are clamped down. So, and and when the Malaysian government is fighting terrorism, extremists, uh, and they just arrested a couple of ISIL, um, ISIS um, 
sympathizers here in Malaysia uh -huh. um, because you know there's a whole network between here in Malaysia and south of Philippines and south of Thailand and um, and possibly Indonesia as well but at the same time the ideology is is being is like the norm so what's the difference you yeah, know, the on only what grounds did they yeah. arrest them were they uh, they had weapons they weren't supposed to have or like yeah yeah, that and they were training and they were planning according oh, yeah. to the government to attack Malaysia. Yeah, and are they? So that was my next question. So if there's this two-track system of civil, secular, civil law, and then on the other hand, Sharia law, is the you know I know the extremists are not content to simply uh, insist that that Muslims uh, abide by the law, but are also uh, punishing infidels who never were Muslim in the first place. Is there a I mean, do the non-Muslims in Malaysia feel a sense of danger from this? Yeah, there is, you know, there is the Islamic party and they, they, um, they've been fighting to have hudud law implemented. And that is when you chop your left hand off or the, mm. if you're, if you're right handed, then you, they chop your left hand off, mm. you know, it's, um, if you steal and it's really, um, it's starting to worry the non-Muslims. Um, so, but because it's still democratic, um, it's um, the hooded law does is is not cannot be ga gazetted, gazetted as law because it is um, unconstitutional to the to the Malaysian constitution, right? Right. So these two are so, in tension. Yeah, that's right. There is a lot of tension between the civic court and the Sharia court right now. Wow, that is so complicated. Yeah. So uh, so the conference is concluded now, and and what are, what are you up to next? Oh, I'm meeting a lot of, um, I've got tons of meetings. Um, I'm meeting up with um, religious scholars tomorrow evening for dinner who are progressive um, and they are traditionally trained, you know, in the Arab world and Jordan, Saudi Arabia, what have you, but are progressive minded and even LGBT affirming, which is for us the last checkbox as to what defines you as progressive. Right. So Muslims for progressive values, and I know this, but for the listeners, like you've been championing uh, LGBTQ equality uh, since your inception. Is that isn't that right? You have yeah, that's you have right. leaders within your organization as well that are that are gay and lesbian. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one of our um, that's one of our values is that you can't discriminate against LGBT people. They're human beings too, and they have human. You know, they, they need to be respected as equals. So, right. And the Quran is very clear. There's no punishment for being a homosexual, and yet the actual practice is not the case. Um, so the the positions that we take on LGBT rights on various other other issues are very um, very much from the Quran and very much from sacred texts and old traditions because you know you've got the good traditions you've got the bad traditions so we we, we have to dust off the good stuff you know because right. all the good stuff buried and what's really being highlight, highlighted as Islam and relevant and legitimate is the radical and intolerant stuff and the hate stuff mm. and well look at the Muslim world it's a bloody disaster right now right and that's and why it's because of the hate theology so it sounds very much like the the liberal theology that I became more acquainted with as as my fundamentalism became less tolerable to myself like I, I was raised in a very uh, conservative uh, version of Christianity and then over time became more liberal because I was I too was trying to reconcile uh, LGBT equality women's equality uh, a variety of other uh, social justice issues and the only way I could do that was, as some might call it, picking and choosing uh, Bible verses that were more uh, progressive, more modern, and leaving aside, you know, for example, the Apostle Paul speaks about women shouldn't speak in the church, and that because women sinned first before the, before Adam sinned, Eve sinned, and therefore there's a curse on the women and so forth. And then in another place, Paul says there is no distinction between men and women uh, before God, and progressives basically say, well, the one transcends the other. I mean, is this a kind of theological method that uh, progressive Muslim scholars are also using? Yes, and and um, and so, yes, we pick and choose too, but the difference is we pick and choose the good stuff, and right. what's wrong with that, you know? And I think at the end of the day, 
um, the last the last message um, and the the way the Quran was revealed is 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 about um, inclusivity. The Quran is very clear. There is um, Islam. This is not a new religion. It is continuing from the Abrahamic tradition. It's right. very clear in the Quran, and there's been a lot of um, examples of Prophet Muhammad, like when a Jewish man died, he, you know, fasted with them. He showed respect for the Jewish tradition, um, and he actually had um, a, an agreement with the church because they protected him. Um, and that agreement, in black and white, with his signature, is still available at a monastery, a Christian monastery in Egypt. Wow. So, yeah, it's incredible. And there so the is this history that, that can be drawn upon. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, um, but, you know, the Quran is very clear. You know, a believer, the word Muslim means uh, believer. And a Muslim with a capital M. It's a Muslim with a small M. Right, right. right. And what we did was we made it into a capital M, and then we became an exclusive religion. Um, you know, but n none of the tradition. I mean, Jesus didn't come to reveal Christianity. Right, right. he was a Jew. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, Prophet Muhammad didn't come to reveal Islam. Right. So it's you know a lot of the religion is man-made construct. Sharia law is a completely hundred percent man-made construct. And when you say man, it's you literally mean man-made. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And medieval misogynistic political men on top of that, right? right? And it has nothing to do with um, justice, even though it claims to be. It ha it is so far off from what the real teachings of the Quran of egalitarianism, of justice, social justice. Mm. Um, so you know, when people talk about Sharia law, it's God's law. It's no, it's completely man-made, and people don't even know. Muslims don't even know. The, the, the context of the history of Sharia law. Wow. Now, were you raised in a progressive Muslim family, or were you more fundamentalist and then gradually evolved in a sort of a similar way that I did? Um, my parents were traditional, pra prayed five times a day, we fasted, mm -hmm. um, I studied Quran at home with my, my, you know, with my father and are on my own. Um, I did the traditional thing of reading the Quran from beginning to end, and it's called Hatam. So I did that, not but not understanding a word of what I read, right? But it's the tra tradition that you do. Um, so I was raised in a traditional environment, but not an abusive one or an intolerant one, right? right so, right. for for example. Um, when I was five, I went to school in Germany, and it was the British school. And at that time, when you were gathered for assembly, you prayed, mm -hmm. and we prayed to Jesus. And so I went home, and I said to my mom, so, you know, I'm praying to Jesus. What do I do? And he <laughs> says, oh, you know, just replace Jesus with Allah, and it's, you're fine. You're good and, you know, to go. We're all praying, yeah, we're all praying to the same God. Mm. So that's the, that's the sort of mindset my parents had, and... Um, and there's many examples of that that really, I think, what shapes the way I look at the world and different people and different cultures and different religion. And it has a lot to do with all the world traveling that I did and growing up in different countries as well, right? The richness mm -hmm. of God. Right. Yeah. Now, how does your family feel now about the work that you're doing? Well, um, most of them don't agree with me. Um, my sister, I have one sister, and she vehemently disagrees with me because she was educated at the Al-Azhar University in Egypt, okay. which is, you know, the the Sunni Islam's um, highest um, education university, um, theology, theology wow. you know, that's where they all, many graduate from. So she completely disagrees with me. But, you know, she's... In my opinion, she's as Wahhabi and as Muslim Brotherhood as they come. Hmm. So, does she live there in Malaysia still, or? Yeah, she's here. I mean, she lives here. And she wants to have a powwow with me, and I'm not really interested. Um, wow, that's tough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but she was the one that told my sister-in-law to tell me that the religious authorities are. Um, putting up investigating me they're all collaborating they're trying to figure out who i am what who my family is and what my heritage is because you know they, because i go by anizanavel but in malaysia i have my maiden name as well so right so she kind of gave yeah. you a heads up yeah through my sister-in-law she gave me a heads up on that wow 
Now, I mean, the, the big elephant in the room, of course, is that while you were having this progressive Muslim conference in Malaysia over the weekend, these horrible atrocities happened in Paris and Beirut and Baghdad, and um, that must have just rocked the conference. I mean, you, here you are talking about how do we progress as Muslim people uh, to have a more peaceful expression of, of our faith, and then this thing happens. Um, it is, um, it, it wasn't like the elephant in the room. I mean, given the fact that we would, we had to fight the religious authority just to have a conference right. on progressive Islam that mm. was, and the threats that were, I mean, there were threats against me basically on, on Facebook saying off with their heads, oh my word. burn the hotel down. You know, there were direct threats at, at us, but at me in particular, and Facebook, shame on them. It took them a week to take it down. And they said, oh, it's instigating a healthy debate. I'm like, are you bloody kidding me? Off with their heads? That's yeah. not, that is not a healthy no. debate. No. So, you know, the, oh. the, Facebook has to really, people need to challenge them. It's unacceptable. Um, so they're not really helping with the progressive, uh, us progressive movement because, you know, we don't, we don't have that kind of manpower against the radical movement. They've had, you know, 25, 30 years head start. And so the fact that we were here in Malaysia being threatened by these radical elements in Malaysia and the religious authority, which is part of the government and the police, and yet, you know, th this was our reality. Right. And then the outside world reality was all the bombings in Lebanon and, um, like I say, Iraq and Paris. Um, it was just like, okay, at what point are we going to recognize that the only alternative narrative to radicalism is a progressive interpretation of Islam? It has to be. Right? Exactly. And um, that was really in everyone's face because of all the violence that was happening. Wow. Um, it was like Exhibit A, what exactly <laughs> what you're... Or maybe Exhibit B, because your own personal experience in Malaysia as a group and as you as an individual was Exhibit A, but here you have... Exhibit, no, Exhibit Z. Exactly. <laughs> like... Yeah. I mean, there's so... Here it is, this John on the world stage, something sort of on the magnitude, not number of casualties necessarily, but in terms of capturing the world's imagination, it was on par, it seems to me, with 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. And But the thing is, I, the, the West doesn't seem to understand who they are sleeping with. And the West, um, not all, but majority, our government, our American government is guilty of this. They are in so, so married, in in bed with the Saudis, and they don't really give a hoot about progressive Islam or radical Islam. They say they do, but if you really did care about the root of it, you would not be in business with the Saudis. And don't you think, like, I, this is so interesting because there was a headline today, and it was probably business as usual, but there was a headline today about multiple billions of dollars of weapons being sold to Saudi Arabia today from the U.S. Um, to combat yep. these these ISIS groups and whatever. And and I think by, this is my opinion, you can tell me what you think, but it seems like by avoiding the religious narrative that runs underneath much of this extremism and by simply looking at it as a political problem, you, it's, you could justify, you know, arming the Saudis uh, instead of saying, no, they are fundamentally part of the problem as well. I mean, it's the hotbed of Wahhabism there in Saudi Arabia. That's right. It is there. Um, theology that has corrupted Islam throughout the world. You know, the Muslim thinking is not that much different from Saudi slash ISIL. Right. You know, so I wrote, I wrote a piece, an op-ed that was published, and it's called um, the, um, the Governance of uh, ISIL and much of the Muslim-majority countries are uncomfortably familiar. And so basically, I took the issue of, say, um, apostasy or just freedom of expression or freedom of and from religion. Um, ISIL just kills you. Right. Either you convert or we kill you. Right. Saudi Arabia, they chop your head off, right? Right, or, or then, imprison you permanently or something. Yeah. And in Malaysia, uh, which is supposed to be a moderate country, they... They throw you. In, they throw you into a center, a detention center, where you are rehabilitated. Rehab. Uh, you go through rehab until you affirm that you are still a Muslim. Right. Okay. Wow. So there's no difference 
um, ex in the theology from the root of it is just the actual punishment varies depending on their Sharia law, which, now, like I said, is man-made. How do you feel then about like European authorities and, and American authorities who really and journalists and 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 uh, you know pundits who who continue to say on the left, on the one hand, on the left. These authorities are saying, or I'm not sure they're authorities, but pundits and whatever, it has absolutely nothing to do with the theology of Islam. And on the right, for them, it's fundamentally all Muslims, you know, are bad and, and yeah. refugees should be blocked and all of this. It seems yeah. like, you know, there's these two extremes that on, on the left, it's like, oh no, Islam is a, is a religion of peace and there's no problem with Islam. It's really just politics. And then on the right, it's, all Muslims are evil and should be blocked from entrance to our countries or something. Well, they're both wrong. And, right, I know. Uh, and how do we navigate this? I mean, what would be, I mean, if you had an hour with President Obama or an hour with President Hollande and, and you had a chance to say, like, look, this is what I think should be the response of the West. I mean, what do you think needs to happen? First of all, they are... Um, that, you know, President Obama talks a lot about there needs to be an alternative narrative that is appealing to the youth, you know, alternative narrative. He's been saying this until he's blue in the face. Right. But when it comes, you know, when it comes down to it, when they have the CV conference at the White House, which is the countering violent extremism, nine out of those, out of ten, those attending are conservative are, like I said, not that much different. There are Muslim organizations that silence women's voices, right? They are intolerant of freedom of expression, freedom of and from belief. That are intolerant, right? even hateful to LGBT people. So, you know, it's why not do a, you have... It's not a progressive voice. No. And so, what are you doing? You're elevating the, the same voices that are intolerant, that is just a, a shade lighter than Saudi or ISIL sitting at the table with you. And you have one progressive person that you flew in from Tunisia who doesn't speak English and is completely surrounded and, you know, outnumbered. Outnumbered, right. I mean, I'm not saying not have conservatives at the table. Of I'm saying have a fair representation. And what is your, you know, if, if you're looking towards that alternative narrative, why are you having these conservatives at the table? They're not your alternative narrative. Right. And it's the same with the Europeans. They don't know religion and they're really grasping. But when we are at the United Nations and we challenge the Muslim majority countries on their human rights abuses, and they use Sharia law as an excuse to for FGM, for child marriage, and right. what have you, we go in there and we file a report and it says, hang on a second, when you claim that child marriage is Sharia law, well, hang on a second, the Quran actually said um, marriage is between two consenting souls. So... You know, a child is not going to consent because you are forced into marriage. Right. Um, and for you to make the decision to go into marriage, you have to have a sound mind. It says that in the Quran. Mm. So it's so bogus. A lot of these, you know, Sharia law justifications for human rights. Um, when we go into the United Nations challenging the Muslim nations, a lot of the Western states and the non-Muslim states um, are really shocked at our alternative narrative because they had no idea that apostasy is actually not punishable in Islam, in the Quran. None. Zero. All of no that excuse. is in the Hadith? Yes. It's in the Hadith, yes. And the Hadith is, you know, the collection of writings 200 years after Prophet Muhammad died and um, some of it questionable, some of it contradicts the Quran itself. And the one example of this person being um, uh, being punished with capital punishment, I think he was beheaded for, um, um, was not because he converted out of Islam, but because he was a traitor to his tribe. So mm -hmm. even in the U.S. military, what happens if you are uh, charged with... Um, um, what's it called when you are... Um, treason or something? Treason! Yeah. What's the punishment? It's capital punishment. Right. So it's no different in the time of war. Right. So yeah. that's where they take it from. I don't know if you're familiar with the the work of Quilliam in the UK and Majid yeah. Nawaz. And it seems like he uh, is 
he and his organization are taking a similar approach. I mean, more of a not. He has some theologians that work with him, and and they're again trying to offer an alternative uh, perspective that that Islam can be reformed. And I, I think even there have been other um, very strident anti-Muslim voices who have recently, I think, moderated their their tone a bit and said, "Look, we need to have this reformation." Christianity had a reformation. Uh, there were, you know, serious abuses by the church uh, in the Middle Ages. People were killed at the, burned at the stake. You know, it's not so unusual, uh, or not unusual, but it's, it's not so, uh, foreign to Christianity, these types of, uh, violent expressions. Um, yeah. you know, the Catholic Church, uh, which was really the only church in those days, uh, you know, beheaded people and burned them at the stake and stretched them on the rack until they died, you know, uh, for apostasy as well. But then we had a reformation. And theologians came along and said, this is uh, an abuse of uh, what might be a tenuously connected theological idea, but here's a whole nother way of approaching theology that will lead us away from these abuses into a freedom. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, Islam is, is neat and you're, I see you as one of the, uh, Muslim reformers that needs to be uh, elevated your voice and, and others. The question is, it, will it happen in time or have the weapons of destruction, you know, they're so much more dangerous than they were in the Middle Ages. Um, it seems like mm -hmm. we're running, you know, that the time is of the essence. Yeah, the time is of the essence. But the other thing, too, is that um, people from Christian background must really refrain from using the word reform because that rubs much of the Muslim population the wrong way. Oh, really? Why like, is that? Well, because they don't see Islam doesn't need reformation. Um, so like when I gave you the example of a man who was beheaded for treason. I see. Right? Uh -huh. That wasn't because he was beheaded because of apostasy, hmm. but for treason. So what has happened, how we define it is Islam, the theology of, of Islam is has been bastardized. Mm-hmm. Okay, the what needs to be reformed, or is that Muslims need to be re-educated about Islam? So it's more of back to the original kind of approach. Yeah, back to the original. But you know, the Salafis, the radicals, they also go back to the original. But however, they go back to the Hadith, which is full of violent stuff. Right. They do not go back to the Quran. We go back to the Quran. I see. That's the difference. Okay. Well, that's an important distinction, and um, I mean, certainly, um, we—I don't—I wouldn't want, uh, you know, fans or supporters of your work to uh, impede things by uh, invoking sort of the wrong uh, expression about it, because the work that you're doing is so important, and um, it's just—I'm so grateful uh, that to have known you all these years, and and thank you so much. I know you have a, a tight schedule today, so we want to. Uh, respect your time and i just appreciate so much you taking the time uh early sure in, thing. early in your right. morning yeah but just let me say one thing um please yes that um that even though we started in the united states you know our organization has grown we we have several chapters in the united states um several cities and we are in canada we're in france we're in germany chile um, Australia, Bangladesh, now Malaysia, and coming 2016, Burundi, Tanzania, and hopefully Tunisia. Oh, wow. So, so the movement is growing, and there's more and more people wanting to come on board. Um, so I, I think when you talk about uh, time is of the essence, you know, the Muslim world is so sick and tired of it. They are on the brunt of a lot of this violence, right? right? They are the ones that are, yes, experiencing yes. it. Yeah, but you know what? The news doesn't report much when there is a bombing in Iraq or in in Beirut. You know, it's uh, another day in the Muslim world, right? right. But right. Right. And to a large extent, it's true. We become numb to that. The media doesn't report it. But, you know, when Paris happens, then uh, Charlie Abdo and so on, and, and, and the recent bombings and killings, the rampage, you know, it becomes, it takes a life of its own. Right. It's, there's, a, there's a double standard. Let me give you another example. When ISIL was chopping people's heads off in, in Syria and Iraq, hmm. the media didn't report it at all. But for a good month, that's what they were doing. Right. Until the first Westerner got... Um, 
um, head got chopped off. Right. That's when the media came on, and then it became a war against ISIL. ISIL was in the media every day from that day on. Yeah, and it had been going two, three years of this type of behavior before that, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, prior to a, a, a Daesh coming on, becoming a power of its own, I- the Iraqi government was slaughtering the Sunni Iraqis. That's right. Yeah. You know, and that's that's why that's why we have Daesh. You know, right. because the Shia government in Iraq was incredibly uh, violent and oppressive to the Sunni population, and they were they were basically doing what uh, what Saddam Hussein did, but the reverse. You know, Saddam was Sunni and he oppressed the Shia. Now the Shia government is doing the same to the Sunni. So so there you have it. <laughs> mm. Well, it's you know we I think it is a. You know, sometimes those of us that non-Muslims that are watching this struggle to know what we can do. Would you have any closing advice for uh, for people like me and others that are listening? Um, how can we support you and what you're doing? Please, um, number one, stop forwarding and rehashing the anti-Islam um, nonsense that is being cut and pasted from the radical Muslim theology. You are validating the radical Islam when non-Muslims cut and paste the same violent theology to justify your own prejudices against Muslim and Islam. Mm, yeah, it's the same thing it, in reverse. Yeah, exactly. It's We're so tired of that. We need as many allies um, as possible. If you are motivated by peace, by compassion, no matter what religion or no religion, we don't give a hoot. <laughs> We're just so sick and tired of it. We just, you know, just wanting to walk that path of peace and fighting both sides, you know, the radical Muslims and the, the haters of Islam on the other side, it's, it's, it's exhausting. And so just doing that mere fact of not cussing and pacing and not sharing intolerance and supporting the positive voices that would be the, the best help we could get from you. Well, that's great. Well, that's something we can definitely do. Well, Thank be, you. Uh, be safe uh, there in, in Malaysia and wherever your travels take you next. And uh, I look forward to maybe having you back on the program, program at some point in the near future. Thanks, Ryan. All sure right. thing. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm so grateful to Ani for her time and for the effort she took to, uh, to phone in from Malaysia. Uh, where she's under some pressure, even though her voice sounds so calm, I know she must be um, experiencing some degree of anxiety as she navigates the the challenging waters uh, there in in her country. In fact, she's I don't know if she mentioned it on the show, but she's um, born and raised in Malaysia, even though she now lives in Los Angeles. But she's literally traveling the globe uh, each month uh, as a voice. And uh, uh, not just a voice, but an organizing power uh, for uh, the future of a peaceful Islam. And uh, she's a voice in the United Nations. Uh, She's starting chapters of Muslims for Progressive Values around the world. I want to encourage you to visit their website, uh, mpvusa.org. That's mpvusa.org to just see and learn all of the various things that uh, MPV is doing uh, in, in, in all the things that, that, that Ani has uh, spoken to us about. Uh, she's taking great personal risk, um, as well as the other leaders of this movement. You know, we may, or you may, or I may not be personally a theist or, or a Muslim. We may, uh, you may have heard some, her say some things in this episode that you think, I, I don't agree with that, or I think that she's um, maybe not uh, reflecting my views about the Quran, um, but I hope that you can um, put a pause on those feelings for a moment and really just listen to what she's saying and what she's doing and the strategic importance of the work that she and, and her group are doing uh, because we, uh, we urgently need, uh, 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 well, she said not to use the word reformation, but I'm trying to think of a better word. We, we urgently need uh, a progressive Islam, uh, an Islam that is inclusive and welcoming and tolerant and able to live alongside its non-Muslim neighbors 
And the vast majority of Muslims around the world are exactly those Muslims. They are living in uh, pluralist societies and more than happy to live peacefully alongside their Jewish and Christian and non-religious neighbors. But we do have this real uh, fundamental challenge of uh, radical extremism. Um, and, and Ani and others are doing really great work to counter that message and to create a more hopeful, peaceful message. Um, and I, I just couldn't be more proud to call her my friend. Um, so look her up. Uh, look up her um, her website, mpvusa.org. I'm also going to be linking in the show notes to at least one article that she's recently written. But you can follow her on Huffington Post. She has a regular column there. Uh, and just keep in touch with um, the exciting work that she's doing. And I, I know that we'll have her back on the program when she has a little bit more time, uh, but I'm just grateful that she took so much time out of her day uh, so so far away from home. Um, so we, we wish you well, Ani. Thank you again for your time. Uh, if you appreciate this podcast and uh, you can support us, we do desperately need your support. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of time and energy and uh, that goes into making this. And if you can support us financially, uh, please visit um, my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There's also a GoFundMe page if you would like to make a one-time donation rather than the monthly recurring donation at Patreon. You can go to gofundme.com slash lifeaftergod. All the information about Life After God, including the link to our Patreon page, is at our website, lifeaftergod.org. Also there, you'll see uh, recent articles, uh, the calendar of events, that, uh, especially the upcoming speaking appointments that Greta Vosper and I have in Atlanta this coming weekend. And uh, if you're going to be in Atlanta, we look very much forward to meeting you. And we'll be broadcasting live from the launch party, uh, as well as recording um, the talks that happen at the launch party. So be watching the podcast for new episodes that are quite different from our normal episodes There'll be um, recordings from from the events that we're doing this weekend. So thanks again, everyone, for your enthusiastic support. Your emails and messages mean so much to me. Uh, Keep them coming. And if you have a question or a suggestion, definitely email me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Until next time, uh, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been Life After God. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.